circle. Different use of the word skeeting than I'm <laughs> previously I'm pretty to. sure that's what it's called on Blue Sky. I, <laughs> I might have just um, made it up. But I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. I should know. Uh, it, this is the media show that tries to make sense of the chaos that is our 24-hour news cycle and chaotic it has most certainly been. Mm, mm. We are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation as we do every week, lands for which sovereignty has never been ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And I'm Jess Lilly. In the studio with uh, Charlie Lewis. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. I'm sort of fuzzier than normal this week. I don't know if it's because it's just been... Like we talked about the 24-hour media cycle. So the last 24 hours have been pretty mm. crazy. So maybe I've just been maxed out. Well, also, you're, you're one week in your new joint, aren't you? I think that, that yes. it's disorienting, like having to learn a whole new For sure. It still feels and... unfamiliar. Yeah, mm. that's, but that, it might be that. But and I feel like maybe our listeners aren't going to tune Not knowing where your teacups are <laughs> yeah, and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Uh, on tonight's show, we will talk to uh, Charles Livingston, an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Monash University who has a particular interest in gambling reform and we will be chatting about the media's response to calls for a comprehensive ban on sports gambling ads in light of the You Win Some, You Lose Some report. But first, to an appalling ad (laughs) that uh, the Australian Financial Review ran and then apologised for today. Um, I'm just going to try and explain it to you if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it's one of those things that just to describe it, you're like, am I going to say something offensive just describing what it is? (laughs) I've kind of tried to write this down so I can navigate it because it's really bad. It's basically the advertiser is a group called Advance Australia and the full page ad features uh, what is frankly a racist and sexist cartoon depicting Yes, 23 director Thomas Mayo with his hand out. He's appearing to dance for uh, a, a wad of cash that's being handed to him by fellow Yes, 23 director and Wes Farmers chairman Michael Cheney. MP Kate Cheney, as if that's not bad enough, MP Kate Cheney, a teal MP for Curtin, and who is also Michael Cheney's daughter, is sitting on his knee wearing a sort of teal-coloured fairy yeah. book dress. It's just appalling and, like, breathtakingly appalling. The headline is, don't worry, sweetheart, it's just shareholders' money. So it clearly appears to be an ad uh, against the yes vote and there it, it, there is a nod in it to something that um, a comment Peter Dutton made on Wednesday where he said, I don't want to every time I hand over my credit card or cash at Bunnings or Coles, I don't want part of that money going to an activist CEO. Um, and I, I, But the, the thing is it's impossible to be sure you know, whether it's advocating for the no vote or what it's doing, because literally apart from that headline, there is no other messaging. There's no other argument made for or against or why you shouldn't vote yes or why these, you know, it's just a a real sort of um, derogatory caricature of these people that seems to be um, attempting to suggest that there's some sort of um, nefarious business yeah, going yeah, on yeah. like that. It's it I, I, honestly yeah. astounds me that it was published in in the end in the Australian Financial Review, no less, which is published by nine papers. Yeah, 
unbelievable. They have since said um, it shouldn't have. They shouldn't have published it. But mm. you know, what is the recourse for something? What What are your thoughts on this, Charlie? Well, I mean, I, I think as you say, I, I, a few people pointed out, and it did did sort of raise a smile in the crikey office today that that when we wanted to run an, uh, mm. an, uh, an advertisement about our, our campaign with um, uh, Lachlan Murdoch, uh, they would not run that. No. Um, so they have, <laughs> they have some standards. Well, I imagine they didn't run that because they were like, we don't... We don't <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, yeah, this is you your know, fight, buddy. This, this is, ain't none of our business. We don't want to get sued by <laughs> the Murdochs. Thank um, you very much. Yeah, I mean, as you, as you sort of say, it's, it's uh, to the extent that you can... It's it's both incoherent and to the extent that you can sort of get any coherence out of it, it's just deeply offensive. Mm. Uh, it 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 uh, literally infantilizes both um, Kate Cheney and Thomas Mayer. To, to any of our listeners who don't know who Kate Cheney is, she is essentially the um, the expression of the teal movement in in WA. She mm. won uh, the seat of Curtin, which is the most wealthy seat in WA, um, and has been liberal. Party property, basically, for the, almost the entire time that it's existed. It was two years uh, in an ex-liberal um, independent held it in the 90s. But apart from that, it was Julie Bishop's old seat. So that probably tells you something. And if you don't know who Thomas Mayo is, he is a Coreg uh, and um, Cal, uh, Coreg Aboriginal and Cal Galgal Arambul and Torres Strait Islander man and is the Assistant National Secretary of the MUA and um, he is a signatory of the Uluru Statement of the Heart and I believe he also co-authored um, a guide to the yes vote. Yeah, he did with um, with Kerry O'Brien. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's been a very prominent kind of yeah. voice in, in favour of the voice. Um, and, I mean, there are – of course, there have been criticisms, you know, of of him as a prominent voice. Sure, sure. But – and there's nothing wrong with criticism, but this is just flat out Yeah, and, and I, th- I think a lot of people who would be in favour of, of a no vote or at least – Sorry, a lot of people who would be in favour of a yes vote, or at least people who weren't like sure one way or other, would say it's absolutely fine that you would run adverts advocating for a no vote. But this is this is sort of something a bit different. I mean, it's interesting. Warren appalling. Lundin did not did not back down from that ad at all. He he very much stands by it. He, um, oh, the other thing. That oh, you yeah. Missed, so who 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 is so who oh, is this Advance group? Australia. Advance yeah, yeah. Australia. I just want one last thing on the on the ad. It's, basically, it's sort of yeah, a grim caricature. Also, the other thing worth noting is that um, Thomas Mayo's caricature has a hammer and sickle on his red t-shirt oh, yes of course <laughs> because that because again there's there's as you say it's it's an allusion to um uh some kind of sense of conspiracy some sense that, but also, that a powerful uh, industrialist is com- com- is is combining with left-wing activists and members of parliament to somehow i don't quite know what they're saying um but but as, as i said dutton referred to you know any sort of corporate um um, sort of corporations getting behind the, the vote it is... as activists as well. See, yeah. activist CEOs. Like yeah, there yeah, yeah. is this, there is this kind of really lame kind of um, sort of yeah, yeah. messaging been... from a lot of people on the no side that anyone who is um, speaking up in favour of the yes vote is an activist. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I mean, it's funny. I think like that's that's something that the that's that's rhetoric that that. Peter Dutton has been uh, resting on for a long time. Basically, when he became leader, he was like, "I think we're estranged from big business. You know, we're we're about small business now." And it's like that's that's only true if you look at social issues. So on mm. like marriage equality, yeah, they, he hates big business on marriage equality. He hates big business on the voice. 
But when it comes to everything else, industrial relations, tax reform, anything that could actually mining. take mining, anything that actually could take away the power they have to make this kind of influence on public policy, he has no interest in reform in that area. Um, yes, Advanced Australia are basically they are a um, they, they they market themselves as a as a right wing get up. So the 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 um, kind of progressive activist group get up. Um, they kind of – and so their, their, their pitch is basically they're the opposite of that. They will be reaction in reaction to what they want. Um, they first kind of came to prominence during the 2019 election um, where they, they came up with a, a very strange character called uh, Captain Getup who was a sort of oh, that's big, right. big felt oh, okay. um, superhero mascot type who would sort of walk around various electorates with his friend – and I'm not joking, uh, another mascot called Freddy Foreign Money. So there was, the, oh again, it was God. that kind of slightly grubby, um, conspiratorial, George Soros is behind all it's of this It's just all kind about undermining people's credibility. That's yeah, all and, it is. And once again, like also targeting, in that case, it was t- targeting Zali Stegel, who was a sort of, I guess, the, the proto-teal, if you like, the sort of first... There was, there first, was a, like, an ad, wasn't there, about Yeah, basically, one, one of the That's online things I, they did I was, was, was uh, this Captain Getup character kind of going and sort of frotting rubbing himself up against all her like posters and stuff because he loved mm. her so 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 much uh, that was when that was the in the election that she eventually won the seat off of uh, Tony Abbott and kind of i think kind of set the template for that that idea that you could have a kind of socially progressive maybe fiscally a bit more conservative figure who would be able to kind of snooker the more right-wing liberal party members that were in those kind of more wealthy seats Mm. um and they've sort of yeah they've not looked back since so the only thing that i can see the only name on their website is matthew sheehan and yeah it's weird isn't it that um there's just no one else there's nothing there's no in the in the about section there's no yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, yeah. The, I mean, the the the. I don't know if he still is the member. I remember. I remember when it first came to. I'm. 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 I haven't looked into them recently, but I know they were uh, recently. Uh, they were. I think one of the forming um, directors was a guy called Gerard Benaday, who was a sort of Liberal Party lifer, and he he mm. worked for Tony Abbott and um, was chief of staff to uh, Tim Nichols, who was at one stage the the, the Queensland LNP sort of state level leader. Um, and and uh, there was former ABC chair Morris Newman was involved in a long time. So a lot of like kind of high high profile um, a lot f- high profile like right wing figures who were sort of part of it. Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what their makeup is now. I'd have to look into that. I mean, I guess the 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 big thing is like you know this is it's, we're still months out, like three months out, you know, from from the. Um, from the vote and for this to be the tenor, the tone of yeah. advertising, it just doesn't bode well. And, uh, you know, it, you know the, the damage, the long-term damage of stuff like this can be enormous and you would just hope that there, there would be consequences. Well, I think it'll, it'll be really interesting to talk. I think this is something that we might talk to, to Charles about mm. when, we, when we get him on is um, uh, this is a bit of a, a kind of, theme that we're seeing um over the last couple of years as legacy media kind of continues to slowly quake to its death where like there's just it appears that there will be there's nothing that they won't take money to run i remember the i mean except I, for a crikey yeah. except for a crikey yeah you know they have to have some standards <laughs> obviously um but like for example you know during the height of the pandemic um all the major papers in australia were running ads from the united australia party 
uh, promoting vaccine skepticism and mask skepticism mm-hmm. and anti-lockdown um, rhetoric. Um, uh, and obviously, we've just seen this big outcry from mainly broadcasters, radio and, and, and TV, about the idea of cracking down on gambling yeah. ad- advert- advertising. So I think that'll be a really interesting thing to get into him. And I think there'll be something that we'll see potentially more and more of, is that if mm-hmm. someone's got the money to buy a full-page ad, Maybe maybe the papers don't feel that they can turn that kind of money down. Yeah, that um, it becomes old news. The the news cycle is so fast now. It's a, yeah, a yeah, public yeah. apology and then it's yesterday's on news. It goes, yeah. um, I just did want to say, though, um, very quickly, while we're on the subject of the Australian Financial Review, they made another choice, interesting choice recently, <laughs> throwing, throwing their hat in the events ring with just the kind of thing we all need as the cost of living crisis deepens, a prestige watch fair. Yes, yes, it was a... It was it was, it was it was amazing on that. It was on, it was on the same day they they ran a, an opinion piece uh, headlined "Why CEOs Should Get Paid More," and that's just like funny AFR being like self parodically AFR about things. Um, and then they the same evening they're like, "Well, you've got the band aid off. You might as well put out this prestige watch fair and and, and put out watches that are." Um, uh, going to cost like a, a house deposit, not that anyone can buy a house anymore. And it was really funny to remember that they have um, a a watch editor <laughs> at the at the at the Finn Adventure Review. Do you know what his name is? I would love to know. It's Banny McSpedden. <laughs> real guy, real job. <laughs> Triple R. Charles Livingston is an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. He's one of the foremost uh, gambling researchers in Australia and particularly interested on the social impact of electronic gaming machines. Uh, He's undertaken numerous consultancies for state and federal departments and regularly contributes to outlets such as The Age and The Conversation. And we are delighted to have him here to talk about the media and gambling reform. How are you, Charles? I'm well, thanks. I hope you guys are doing well too. Uh, we're, we're doing, we're, we're, we're clinging on, we're clinging on. Smashing. <laughs> so um, for the listeners who, who haven't been following this closely, obviously last month we saw um, the Standing Committee on Social Policy um, call for, among other things, uh, a three-year phase in of a full ban on um, advertising for online gambling. Um, could you talk us through these proposals a little bit and I guess some of the politics around that? Okay, so one one of the uh, interesting developments in the recent past has been that um, there's been a sort of a move towards bipartisanship, particularly on the regulation of online gambling, uh, less so in terms of terrestrial gambling such as the pokies, but if we just focus on online gambling, what we see now is the spectacle of Mr Dutton using his budget reply to call for a ban on gambling ads one hour either side of the game, uh, the sort of Parliamentary House of Reps committee that you just referred to came down with a unanimous report. It was an all-party committee, of course, and uh, whereas in the past there might have been a bit of partisanship amongst this, it looks like with the issue of online gambling there is now a unity ticket being played out in Parliament. I mean, maybe this is because everyone hates the bookies, but whatever it is, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable development in Australian history. I mean, it stems really from the Abbott government era, unfortunately, when uh, the government appointed uh, Barry O'Farrell, who at that time had stopped being Premier of New South Wales because of a bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, so they gave, him, <clears throat> they gave him a job as the uh, inquiring into... Uh, what was at that stage called illegal offshore gambling. So, you know, the bookies have been complaining about unlicensed offshore gambling sites targeting Australians. So the government implemented this 
inquiry. Now, O'Farrell did indeed look at that issue, but I think what happened was that along the way, because of submissions from academics, including me and others, and uh, people like the Financial Counselling Association, he came to the understanding that the main problem confronting Australian punters was actually the bookies that were operating here and that their practices were really quite sharp and uh, ill-considered and um, avaricious. So he came down with a recommendation for a consumer protection framework and since then both sides of the political spectrum have been implementing it slowly, maybe too slowly, but nonetheless there's been a unity ticket on this uh, framework. So one of the most recent manifestations of this framework was a change in wording. In the past, they used to say gamble responsibly, which, of course, means nothing to anyone. Uh, And so they've changed that now to words like, well, think of what you're really gambling with, and then you win some, you lose more, Mm -hmm. which, in fact, was the title of the report which came down. So what we've got is we've got the spectacle of uh, both sides of politics deciding that online gambling is pretty bad uh, and that they need to do something about it. And I'm not going to argue with that. Uh, the recommendations range, as you said, from uh, introducing a prohibition on gambling advertising over a three-year period, uh, but they also include encouraging the Australian government to participate in international cooperation in order to uh, regulate these unlicensed sites and at least impose minimum standards of regulation across the globe, which is, of course, the only way you're ever going to get on top of illegal online gambling. Uh, and to reduce harm and to take a what we call a public health focus, that is a harm prevention focus, rather than considering this an issue of the sort of small number of so-called problem gamblers who get caught up in the you know, dynamics of you know a terrible gambling problem. Uh, so s- that's that's it in a nutshell, if I can put it that way. Sure, sure. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there, Charles. I suppose one of the things that you you said, which really stood out to me, was that well. Possibly there's bipartisanship on this because everyone hates the bookies. But there has been pushback, and it hasn't just mm. been from gaming interests. Um, no. the, the kind of peak bodies for both commercial television and radio have both kind of come out and really slammed these recommendations and said that it's going to affect the viability of, of, of individual networks. I mean, can we yeah. talk a bit about uh, kind of the role that advertising revenue plays and, and, and how that may be a stymied uh, reform in the past and maybe will continue to? Well, I mean, the, the, the bookies spend about $300 million a year on broadcast advertising, so you can see why the broadcast advertisers might be concerned about it. Um, as you know better than most people, Charlie, the uh, the media is struggling to make a quid at the moment, and, of course, the broadcast media particularly, because not many people watch it anymore. Yeah. And except for the big ticket items like football, sports in general and so on. So, you know, when when, when you see a big chunk of that revenue allegedly about to disappear, then that obviously they're going to be concerned. But remember, they were equally concerned many years ago, 20-odd years ago, when tobacco sponsorship was phased out, and or more now, isn't it? Uh, and uh, when the ads for, for cigarettes and tobacco companies were uh, taken off, well, firstly reduced in their um, the hours they could be shown and then eventually taken off the air altogether. And, you know, there was going to be the end of sports and there was going to be the end of broadcast media, but neither of those things eventuated. I mean, these these concerns are obviously overstated. When you've got a 
when you've got a vested interest to protect, um, you'll say anything to protect it, I think, and that's as true of the media as it is of anyone. Um, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> true. Well, um, so... It Go is. On, it is interesting. Hi, Charles. It's Jess. Um, it is. Yep. What I find interesting is at the moment. Um, well, especially with um, with uh, gambling advertising, there is such um, an interplay between sports, televised sports, and um, and the advertising. It's kind of part of the entertainment. They've tried to turn it into, you know, almost embedded content using. Um, ex-players or from that sport as, um, you know, to stand in as almost almost news readers giving you the odds as though it's such an innocent thing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, so I I guess that that would, there would be such a shift there, but I suppose at the same time tobacco advertising was really, um, they were major sponsors of sporting events. Um, They sure were. (laughs) uh, What do you think, I mean, how um, in in terms of, I guess what that does give the gambling lobby, though, is a little bit of a hand up in terms of a partner to try and push back on some of these recommendations and try and really lobby the government if they kind of, you know, behind the scenes, they've at least got, you know, the media on side to, to, to try and water down some of the recommendations. How effective do you think that might be? Or, or um, do you think the political will is solid enough to kind of override that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my sense is that at this stage they've probably pushed their luck too far. Mm. Um, I think, you know, bombarding people with up to 950 ads a day, gambling ads a day, um, and, you know, focusing them particularly on those peak sporting events when people were sitting there with their kids watching them being indoctrinated before their eyes with the idea that gambling is a wonderful thing. I mean, a lot of people hate that, and... There's a survey by the Australia Institute last year which suggested that 70% of people would support getting rid of them, basically. Another survey earlier this year suggested that at least 56% of Australians would be very happy to see them banished to after 11 o'clock at night and so on. So I think there's very widespread public support. I mean, I'd be surprised if Mr Dutton had stood up in Parliament and said what he said about prohibiting gambling ads unless he perceived a real groundswell of opposition to them in his electorate or in the community generally. Uh, and so I suspect that's where, the, where that's where it lies at the moment. Now, pushing back by uh, the gambling industry, the sporting codes and the broadcasters uh, is happening, uh, will always happen, and is difficult to stop, especially under our current donations laws and lobbying rules and so on. But I think this time, certainly with the online gambling issue, people, the, the, the general public will be disappointed if it isn't properly implemented. And I think they'll be disappointed with whichever party you seem to be uh, dragging the chain on this. So I, I think prohibiting the advertising is inevitable. It's happened already in four European countries with others thinking about it. And your point about, you know, sports people and these sort of influential um you know, heroes of sport and so on, uh, promoting these things has also been banned in a couple of European countries with more to follow. So, well, it's you know, just—it's I mean, we... um, in terms of what you were saying about kids. I mean, my my kids are into football and they watch they watch the football and and that's what they see. They don't they don't read those. Um, you know, disclaimers that are up at the the messaging that's up at the end. You know, that's yeah. on for for thirty seconds. They see a player who who they see running around on the field. You know, encouraging yes. 
<laughs> encouraging them to take a punt. Well, the Premier League in um, in the UK has uh, decided that they're going to ban logos on uh, soccer jerseys from, I think, next season. So, you know, that was a self-regulatory move. I think they got in ahead of the regulators. But essentially, I think everyone realises that it's not a good thing to associate sports so closely with gambling, just as it was a terrible thing to associate sport with tobacco. And the reason they want to do that, of course, is to normalise it, to make it look like a normal part of life, to think that, you know, in the old days you'd watch the game and then go and have a smoke. (laughs) 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 And these days it's while you're watching the game you can have a quick punt on your smartphone or whatever. So, you know, this normalisation is a really integral part of their marketing uh, and the advertising is really intended to do that. Now, the the other side of that, I should say, is that uh, if indeed uh, these uh, recommendations come to fruition and we see start to see a winding back and then a prohibition of gambling ads, the federal government and the other state and territory governments could also take up some of that space uh, with this advertising, if you like, advertising intended to urge people who might have a gambling problem to mm. go and get some help for it or perhaps even better to suggest to people that uh, just as smoking and sport are a terrible mix, gambling and sport are an even worse mix in some ways and that you don't need to gamble to be a good sporting supporter. And already, you know, a lot of the AFL clubs have uh, ditched their reliance on pokies, have stopped taking sponsorship money from the bookies and so on. Uh, And although, you know, it's hard to, if you're an AFL club, it's hard not to be dependent on the bookies because, after all, the broadcast rights are backed by the gambling ads, the broadcast rights are massive and they find their way into every football club and so on. But I think if they wean themselves off it, it's likely that there will be plenty of other advertisers who are happy to pick up the slack, as, you know, a number of clubs have already found. You talk a bit there about, about state governments and, and their role. I'd like to get maybe, like, broaden out a little bit and talk about the, the recent state election in New South Wales. Um, yeah. And kind of the the, the 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 mad history, I guess you might call it, of of, of influence that that clubs in New South Wales have had. Uh, this is more obviously, yeah. as, you, as you would know, in terrestrial gambling, uh, poker yeah. machines and such. Um, uh, the I mean, I thought the the the, the previous Liberal uh, Minister for Gaming, Victor Dominello, at one point described them as the equivalent of the gun lobby in the United States in terms of the level of power and influence mm-hmm. that they have. And yeah. we saw in the last election that um, the Liberal Party went to that with a much stricter, much less friendly policy towards gaming than the Labour Party, but the Labour Party ended up winning. Do you think yeah. that's a sign of their... I mean, I think we can get into a lot of the drama that happened in that election, but do you think that's a sign that there's still a little bit of fight in the gaming industry, despite the fact that you know, you're seeing pushback from the media and from some political parties? Well, you know, I mean, they, I don't know if you've heard the expression as mad as a cut snake, but when you, <laughs> that's what they're like. Um, you know, they're very, they're, they're very well resourced. Uh, they've got, um, you know, a network of members who they um, tend to draw upon at these times and tell them what I would regard as untruths about what the impact of these reforms might have been. Uh, so they can mobilise people to go and yell at Peter Garrett as they did in 2010 when the Yellow government tried to do something similar. Uh, and they've also got enormous reach into the, certainly into the Labor Party and generally speaking into the Liberal Party and as we saw at the last uh, election in New South Wales, well and truly into the National Party. So 
they built that up by uh, very strategic political donations and they adopt exactly the same tactics as the NRA in America does and that's you know because two of their well their last two chief executives both went to courses where the NRA uh, provided lectures and discussions wow. about their tactics so uh, you know, the issue, the issue is that they are very good at what they do and they're very well resourced at it. Now, this time around, they didn't have quite the cut-through that they used to have in the sense that in the past they've been able to dominate both sides of politics without too much trouble, certainly for the last 10 years. Um, the Liberal Party moving away from their sphere of influence is an interesting development. And we've also seen the same thing happen in Tasmania, where yes. uh, out of the blue, a Liberal government, uh, which had previously been very much in bed with the gambling lobby, uh, decided that it needed to take the advice of its own gambling regulator and introduce a pre-commitment system, which was essentially the same system that... that uh, um, Dominello had proposed and which the government took to the election So in New South Wales. So, you know, I mean, the, the Libs, for whatever reason, have decided that uh, gambling is an issue that um, they want to take on. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's because there are, you know, real decent politicians who can see the harm and the damage done. But there was also an element of, of giving Labor a bit of a, a bit of a wedgie because the Labor Party is very closely dominated by its relationships with the gambling industry, including, of course, the fact that the Labor Party owns and operates five poker machine venues in the ACT, which <laughs> probably yeah. skews their judgment a tiny bit. Cote's Catholic guts, as yeah. Josh Landers put it. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that um, that the the gambling kind of lobby tries to explain away the problem as a minority of problem gamblers, but actually, mm. when you look at the figures, Australians spend um, more in the world per capita on legal forms of gambling, losing $25 billion a year. And online gambling, again, Australians <laughs> top the table um, in, uh, per capita in the world, losing about $7 billion annually. It's a, it's a huge amount of money. Um, and almost half of those who gambled in... 22 were classified yeah. as being at some risk of, of um, gambling harm or problem gambling in the past yeah. 12 months. What impact do you think just removing the advertising will have if, if that comes to fruition? Uh, it's Definitely it's, um, it's what we call a denormalisation tactic. That is, it takes away one of the avenues for promoting the product and starts to make it look a little bit less normal than it otherwise would. I mean, if it's ubiquitous and in its association with sport or whatever, then it becomes much easier for the industry to argue that it's a normal product and everything should be should flow from that. It should be regulated normally and, you know, there shouldn't be extra restrictions in place and it's only a tiny handful of people who get into strife, which, as you point out, is nonsense. Mm. So it's, it's a big deal. I mean, what it will probably do is reduce the number of people who get recruited. And remember, the gambling industry, unlike many industries, relies heavily on recruiting new participants because, unfortunately, the people who make most of the profit for them are the ones who get burnt out over a period of, you know, three to five years, exhaust their assets uh, and end up somewhat depleted of uh, many things, including often family, friends, health and well-being and certainly money. So they, they, they constantly have to keep recruiting people and that's why the advertising is so important for them. For people who've already got a gambling habit, uh, it probably won't make a huge amount of difference. I think, uh, you know, once you're hooked, you're hooked. And 
they use pretty ruthless marketing to keep people hooked. And that's why one of the other recommendations of the committee, which is to ban all forms of inducements, whether you've got an account with them or not, uh, is very important because one of the ways they get people coming back is they'll ring you up out of the blue if you've got an account and you haven't gambled for a while and they'll say, oh, you know, I'll put two, 300 bucks in your account, just, you know, go and use it. Mm, uh, you know, and they do that all the time. And, you know, I've heard examples as recently as last week of bookies in the UK. I remember many of the bookies in Australia now are actually UK-based or whatever. So, and, you know, they're... they're the sort of account managers, particularly if you're a big spender, uh, will constantly be in contact with you, offering you tickets to the to the races. Or Taylor Swift, yeah, Taylor <laughs> Swift. They can get tickets; no one else can. Yeah. Um, and and those sorts of things. So these banning inducements would be a big step forward as well. If if we look at the parallels with tobacco for a moment again, do you think in the future? I mean, there were obviously what followed on. Um, um, from it, once the once to, s- smoking became, you know, demonised, it was then sort of um, became, you know, the public awareness grew about how much of a, a genuine health risk it is, and and the yeah. knowledge of tobacco companies, um, even when they were pumping out this advertising um, to its health harms, then led to sort of class action lawsuits and that sort of thing. Do, do you yeah. see gambling kind of? tipping into that point potentially based oh, on the no behaviours doubt. now that they're like they're really pushing the limits of what is what can conceivably be argued as um, healthy you know you know procurement of of gamblers yeah so what happened with tobacco was that instead of becoming an individual issue it was framed as a systemic issue that is it in order to respond effectively in a public health manner, you have to start adopting uh, a systems response, a systemic or structural response to it. So that means with tobacco, uh, certainly you delegitimise it by taking their ads off the air and starting to run counter-advertising. And then, of course, we started to see restrictions on where people could smoke. We started to see restrictions on uh, you know, when you could buy it, how you could buy it right down now to the point where they can't even promote their brand on their uh, tobacco packets anymore because, you know, that's the last advertising avenue they had. So a similar approach with gambling would not make it outright illegal, of course, but it would... I mean, if people want to punt, let them have a punt. But the sort of wholesale promotion of it and this sort of breathless uh, expectation that everybody on earth is going to punt half of their salary every week, which is what the book is to be urging you to do, um, has to stop. And I think as we start getting closer and closer to understanding the nature of the harms of gambling, and that is a field of research which is expanding slowly but surely at the moment, and not just in Australia, it's a global concern. And I think what that will do is certainly, as you say, people will become to learn that the harms of gambling are not restricted to a handful of uncontrolled so-called problem gamblers, but actually spread far and wide into the community, uh, and that, you know, we can... We we may be able to get to the stage where we have a gambling industry which is properly regulated mm. uh, and which will offer products to people that they can enjoy, but we can do so without ending up losing their house, their family, and then sadly, in some cases, their lives. Charles, you mentioned that the, the, the area of, of research... Um and how it's slowly but surely um, kind of growing. I, I guess I, I, I'm not asking you to name any names here, but in other areas such as tobacco and in, uh, say, areas like climate change, you often see that the people who 
stand to profit from from regulations not being put in place will be surreptitiously or sometimes explicitly funding research that yeah. sort of puts forward their point of view. Have, you, have we found that that's been the same case with gaming industries and that that's sort oh, of yeah. shaped the narrative? Absolutely. And, you know, it varies between countries, but the gambling industry is very active, just as the tobacco industry was, just as the alcohol industry has been and continues to be. And, you know, I mean, there's a sort of, there's two camps in the gambling research field at the moment. I mean, there's a camp that I'm in which says we don't take industry money and we won't be influenced by industry research. Uh, and there's a camp, particularly based in the United States, uh, which is sort of happily taking industry money and producing the sort of research outcomes which favour industry. And those are the research outcomes which focus on individual factors, which blame individuals mm-hmm. for their pathology, uh, which target responses which are inadequate and which essentially focus on treating people or telling them not to do certain things, uh, as opposed to you know what's been called a systemic approach or a public health approach, which focuses on the product, the conditions under which the product is available, its marketing and advertising and so on. Uh, and although you know that camp also is keen on providing appropriate treatment to people, it's much more concerned with preventing harm in the first place. So there's those two camps. The the camp, which is in the industry uh, sector, I suppose you could say, is happy to take gambling money, and there's plenty of Australian researchers who still do that, which is a little bit unique. I mean, it's it's unusual now to find... Well, you certainly wouldn't find a legitimate tobacco researcher who takes industry money. It's increasingly unlikely that you find a legitimate re- uh, alcohol researcher, but it's not uncommon to find lots of gambling researchers that will t- still take industry money, mm-hmm. and that's something the research community has started to clean up and hopefully will continue to do so. We're in your camp, Charles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm camping there. Um, That's great. But I I suppose that does actually raise the question with... We, we saw in the again in the lead up to the the last state election with with terrestrial gambling with with, with pokies and things like that we saw um, what appeared to be a real increase from all the major outlets um, whether it's News Corp or Nine or the ABC really focusing in on um, on gambling harm whereas I think in previous times you've seen more. Uh, playing both sides of the fence a little bit, having a bit of like this is a community measure and this is of good sense of employment or things like that, but what we I haven't seen so much in terms of the harms of online gambling. Do you think that that's the next sort of step in terms of the coverage of these issues? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I look. I mean, I slightly disagree with you there. I mean, I think the you know harms of gambling are the harms of gambling, regardless of the form. And I think there has been some un- not unreasonable degree of coverage of how much harm online gambling can can cause. I mean, it, but it is important to remember this that. According to a very recent and very good study in Australia, somewhere between 51 and 57% of the problems associated with gambling come from poker machines in Australia. Wow. And if you look at all, if you look at all wagering combined, that figure is 20%, and the casinos a third, is something like 10%. So, see what we've got is we've got the real elephant in the room in Australia is the poker machine industry. And until we take that on seriously, we're not going to get any progress in reducing harm to a you know, serious degree. Having said that, online gambling is re- very fast-growing. Uh, it's very dangerous, particularly for young men, but yeah. increasingly for young women. 
Uh, and, you know, it's growing at sort of 8 to 10% a year at the moment after having been turbocharged through the uh, pandemic restrictions. So, you know, you know, against that, of course, we've got this massive poker machine industry which makes $15 billion a year compared to the 7 or $8 billion that the online gambling lobby is legitimately making in Australia. Um, but we're not really keen to tackle that nationally. And I think if the national government is serious about gambling harm, then it has to start providing more significant leadership in that space than it has. And it's great that they've decided to look at online gambling. I appreciate that's why I said at the start, you know, that everyone hates the bookies. They're a pretty easy enemy. But the clubs in New South Wales and the big pub chains and the AHA, I mean, you know, the brave politician that takes that Mm. gang on. They're Mm. very well resourced. They know their business. Their skills have been honed over many, many years of practice. Uh, And, you know, finding a politician who's brave enough to take them on uh, is uh, is something uh, something special. Which is why, you know, the New South Wales Wales government's position was so amazing. Mm. Mm. And, of of course, as you you sort of referenced before, Tasmania, election after election, has been pretty much seemingly single-handedly swayed by a, a pittance as far as the gaming industries and the, the hospitality industries yeah. have, been, have been concerned, but have completely got yeah. basically state capture, I believe, is, is the phrase for it. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, Over Charles, that was such a fascinating chat, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how all of this develops, and, and, and you know, who knows, we may be able to get back onto this again sometime. Thank you so much for joining us, but we will let you go now. <laughs> all right, thanks very much. Have a great evening. You too, thanks, Charles. So. Thank you. A fascinating conversation. It's so good to see some movement on it. And I should have prefaced that discussion with, I'm very sorry, because a lot of that um, might have been triggering for some listeners and, mm. and we should have called that out in advance. Um, if any of the issues we discussed there um, are affecting you and you would like to talk to someone, you can call the National Gambling Helpline on one eight hundred eight five eight eight five eight 858 858 for free professional and confidential support 25 hours a day. Or you can visit gamblinghelponline.org. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Hey, um, Charlie, can you remind me of the name of the watch reporter from the Australian Financial Review he, he, again? Uh, his title is Watch Editor. Sorry, <laughs> So sorry. if you could just show him the respect he deserves. There's Banny McSpedden. Banny yeah. McSpedden. Mm-hmm. It just reminded me so much of um, a story that we both just went, uh, so we're not covering <laughs> yeah. it. But um, I will mention it. Um, the uh, Lord's uh, kerfuffle yes, with yes. Um, the Australian ticket cricket team, you know, af- deeply offending the sensibilities of... Um, of members of the Marlebone uh, Cricket Club, yes, and um, and they shook some fists at them in response. Although it does sound like that they did a bit more than that, and the Marlebone Cricket Club responded saying that they um, <laughs> that they had suspended three members identified who were, you know, giving giving the Australian cricket team a hard time as they walked through at lunch, walked through the pavilion at lunch, and the, their names were Bartholomew Frinton Smythe. Humph- Humphrey Wigbert Porter. <laughs> I, I can't. Hang on. I've got to get one more out. And the last one was Quinton Breckenridge. 
These are your fellow country. I was going to say, like, I love the country, my country of birth, but it also is. It's a fucking joke country, isn't it? Also, I like that when at the end of that you're like, oh, Quentin Brinkeringe is actually is is comparatively a normal name. But you know, Um, I should have started with Quentin Breckenridge. Yeah, yeah, and and then then moved on to Bartholomew Frinton Smythe. It's it it really does sound like a Monty Python, like someone's like like it sounds like Eddie Izzard or like Monty Python doing a bit about (laughs) dumb poshos. Look, I I should probably yeah, as I say, I had very as a cricket fan, I have you know very strong feelings about what happened. As a news consumer, I could not care less, and I don't want to hear about it anymore. The the one the one piece that I that I bothered to read that uh, a little bit of that was quite funny was um, Marina Hyde's um, take in the Guardian because she is of course um, has has a very wicked, a wonderful wonderful writer. Yes, yes, (laughs) she has a great great satirical sensibility and um, took down her own fellow countrymen beautifully. Um, but we- Actually, yeah, I think that's probably what the thing is, that, I, that a, a huge amount of English people would hate those people more than an Australian could possibly manage. <laughs> like, try living with those guys. I mean, that's just got, you know, those names also have Brexit written all over them, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I think they were, yeah, they were, they were the the peers who who, who got it through. Uh, Humphrey Wigbert Porter has got some things to answer for. Uh, hey, um, closer to home, um, mm. the ABC. I mean, you know, every, it's like everyone loves to to hate on the ABC at the moment. It was yeah. um, for a long time. It was um, it was uh, they, it had its a huge. Um, a huge line of defence, I guess, from mm. ABC diehards, um, and who would was you know would fight for the death for their ABC. I remember the bananas in pajamas car stickers, um, you know, a mm. while ago. That's that a while, were, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, you know when there was a well, there was an absolute outpouring of support against. Um, oh, that was the like Abbott era. Yeah, cuts? restricting the funding yeah. and. I, it's funny though. I sometimes I look at the choices that they make now, and I just think I wonder if um, if it's being sort of sort of cut. It's like you know the the a million paper cuts um, from within, just quietly being sort of cuts in so many ways, in so many reputational ways. Whether that welfare, that groundswell of support, would whether even that goodwill exist is still anymore, there. I mean, it's really know? interesting. I mean, because that thing is that the thought the thought that we had was well, now we have a Labor government. Um, the one thing that you could probably rely on is that the ABC will now not be under such constant cowering threat. And then, of course, we have uh, we have two major issues. One, which is not really related to the side of politics in, in play, which is the the kind of ongoing Stan Grant issue and what that pointed to in terms of the experience of particularly Indigenous reporters, but you know, mm-hmm. people of colour in the in the organisation, particularly in the news section, uh, and what what they go through and and kind of what. The, the level of institutional support or lack thereof that they kind of face. And then, of course, we see, uh, and this is what we discussed with uh, Dennis Muller uh, the, the week that you were off. I'm sure you caught up with it. I'm sure you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have let that one go. Um, where we spoke a lot, a lot about uh, the kind of the redundancy of uh, their political editor, Andrew Proben, and kind mm. of what that kind of does to their um, reputation as, as a kind of leading news voice in the country. Mm. And <laughs> there is a new appointment. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. This, so, like, those are the two kind of major issues. And, it, and I don't know if this is stuff that would have happened anyway or it is in direct response to that. But it was really interesting to see this week, firstly, that they, they've um, 
released their three-year diversity, inclusion, and, and belonging plan to kind of address all of the, the the kind of issues in terms of Indigenous staff and employees and, mm. and employees from diverse backgrounds um, uh, and trying and then, to get more people into management from those kind of backgrounds. And uh, so that that feels like a very I – mean, they must have been working on that for a while, but yeah, probably the, urge, timely. the urgency of that one probably got kicked up a little bit yeah. while, while all that was going on. Uh, and then, of course, we've seen uh, the the announcement this week that David Spears is going to move into an expanded role, mm. uh, quote unquote, uh, within the news division um, as kind of national. It, it's one of those classic things when someone gets made redundant and someone moves into a job that looks suspiciously like that old job, but <laughs> has a different a name, bit of a different title. Um, yeah, so national political lead, and I, I just interesting as as a and I, I think you know a, David Spears is, is rightly in my view a very highly regarded interviewer and. Political journalist, but he's a he's a Sky News guy as well, yeah, yeah. and so I wonder what that's going to do in terms of the, yeah. of the of the optics of all that. Well, um, Dennis Muller, the last time we spoke to him, did say for the ABC to be rescued, you'd have to scupper the whole board and start again. Mm. So that is that. <laughs> His words, not ours. By the His way. <laughs> words, not ours. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favorite podcast platform, and you can follow us on Twitter at Sample. At Lily Juice. And at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>